I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome to Chinchilla Squeaks. This is Chris Chinchilla, as always, joining you from a dark and gloomy Berlin. Now, I have an interview this episode, a little different from my Lynx show. I don't do too many interviews these days, mostly when I find someone or something interesting I want to talk to or about. And this is one of those. It is Christopher Willis, who is a CMO at Acrolynx. Who are Acrolynx? They're actually uh, originally from here in Berlin, but they have staff and offices more globally now. And they are a... um, Machine learning, AI-powered writing tool, advisor, framework? What exactly? Well, that's kind of what we get to in the interview. So, uh, yeah, that's what most of this episode is going to be about. And I'll be back next week with a link show. Enjoy. I have actually been interested in speaking to someone from Acrolinks, and I really hope I'm pronouncing that right and not missing an O or an L or an I somewhere. But... Um, for some time, and uh, it's interesting because you are well, the company is based in Berlin, but you are not. <laughs> Where are I'm you? Okay, I only really know Boston. Is We're twenty six miles outside of Boston to the okay. west. Okay. Apple Orchards golf courses. It's about it out here. Are they in the same place sometimes, or very close? <laughs> So I know Acrolinks fairly well because, um, well, first I used to work for one of your possibly still major clients. I'm not sure. So I used it there actually. Um, But secondly, uh, I work a lot in the tech writer space and I know of alternative tools. Um, So maybe we should explain what it is. Uh, And I I think the company has been around for a little while, so maybe kind of what it is and and how the company got there in the first place. Okay, what it is, Acrolynx is AI-powered software that improves the quality and effectiveness of enterprise content. So that means essentially every company, every content owner uh, in an organization has a whiteboard in their office. And on that whiteboard, are all the things that they care about their content. It's the style guideline they use. It's the terminology they care about. It's the tone of voice that they use. It could be emotion. It could be inclusiveness, accessibility. And like I said, it's all about there on the whiteboard. They feel good that they know how they want their content to be created. Problem is um, nobody can see their whiteboard. And if they could, most people don't care. So what Acrolinks does is it captures all those guidelines right off the whiteboard, makes them actionable, and then guides writers in real time to follow those guidelines. So it literally prompts people as they write to align with the guidelines of the organization. So there's a lot of products out there that improve grammar and make individuals better writers. But what Acrolinks does is make an organization, a department, a team write like one person. Mm -hmm. And how, how, how do they define that? Do they, can someone kind of literally type in a style guide or does it have to kind of be configured with? So the, the, yeah. 
the on-ramping of a, of a customer is capturing all of those guidelines. So there's a number of ways that can be done. Um, one is through the interface. Mm-hmm. So within Acrolinks, you can go in and set your style guidelines. So let's say that you use um, a standard uh, AP, for instance, and that is available mm-hmm. within our product and you turn that on. And then you set your tone of voice and the liveliness level that you want. And you add your terminology directory um, so that the words that you want to use and the words that you don't want to use are dropped into it. Um, and all the way through until you have all your, all your guidelines created. That's one way. Mm-hmm. Another way is just to analyze some subset of content within your organization that you have identified as objectively good. This is the content that we want to mirror across all of our writers. And Acrolinks consumes that content, learns from that content, creates guidelines on its own, and then delivers those guidelines out for either editing or use. Mm-hmm. And how, how, how can someone write? I mean, everyone has uh, a lot of writers I know have very um, particular ways they like to write. How can I write and use and leverage Acrolinks? So we run in a sidebar. And that sidebar is available in most authoring tools. So whether you're using very um, use case specific uh, authoring tools like Madcap Flare, for instance, or Adobe products mm-hmm. uh, or Word or Google Docs, uh, the sidebar is available to you. Now, there are a lot of writing assistant products that just edit your content on the fly. Um, Google within your email, within Gmail is now just delivering changes to your content. And what we found is that the type of people, the type of writers that end up using Acrolinks don't want decisions made for them. Mm -hmm. The prompting and the guidance is great. Um, Did you mean to say this? Because we think you might've meant to say that. Oh no, I, I absolutely meant to say what I said and I don't want to change it. So we're not in line prompting people to change their content. You can write and write and write and however you want to create content and then press check. Acrolinks delivers back a series of tickets of all the misalignment that it finds in your content. And now it's on you to accept or reject Mm -hmm. those tickets. Um, If you accept them, sometimes it's easy as just clicking on it and it makes a change for you. Uh, If you reject them, they go away and they come out of your overall score. Okay. Um, it's, it's interesting because actually the, the angle I come from in this is uh, I contribute to an open source um, tool, which we call a linter. And in the kind of technical space, linting is more familiar as a concept. And what you're describing is basically a linting concept. But for a lot of kind of non-technical writers, that's an alien word. Um, you know, it's recommendations as opposed to this is wrong. It's a, this yep. might be wrong. You know, you might want to consider this. <laughs> so, um, tell me a little bit more about the the company. Um, so they, as far as I know, they did start in Germany, which yep. is, is interesting. I mean, firstly, when? Uh, and secondly, did the product start in German and come to English later or did it start in English? It started in English. So... Andrew Bradenkamp is the original creator um, with his early partners uh, as part of his graduate program, uh, 
created the project from which Hackerlinks would spawn. Andrew's British, lives in Switzerland, ah, okay. is working at the time uh, in, in Germany. And uh, the project grew to spawn out of the DFKI, Artificial Intelligence Lab in Germany. Uh, in 2002, a company was created, the mm. first iteration of Acrolinks. And for the first three years, the company really focused on product, um, getting the product ready to go, taking it from concept and early prototype to packaged product that could work in the world. And by 2005, the first customers had come on board, uh, started using the product. The company started to grow from there. Uh, in 2015, more recently, uh, the, or I'm sorry, 2017, the company was acquired by a private equity firm, uh, Genui in Germany, uh, and was primed for growth. Uh, that's when I got here. Okay. Um, and from that time on, we've built out processes and machinery to uh, to scale the company to where we are now and where we're headed over the course of the next many years. Are you, are you one of a handful of people not in Europe or are you really uh, out We are probably, <laughs> I would say, 60-40 okay. North America and Europe. Okay. Um, so our entire uh, development organization continues to be in Berlin, um, all the folks involved with product. Um, but a lot of the front office is now here in the United States. Um, head of yep. sales, head of marketing yep. um, are, are located here. Okay. And I'd like to go back a step and pick up on when you said enterprise because um, you're, you're one of those products that – because I've, I've, I've dived around your website before and, um, you know, it's, it's one of these typical enterprise plays and it's kind of hard to know – um, how much it's going to cost me and how big I need to be and et cetera, et cetera, to know that I may need to use something like this. So kind of when do you think companies tend to find they might have a requirement for something like Aquilinks from a, from a content perspective, but also, you know, from a, they can afford it and it's worth it to them kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. No, so, I mean, we're, we're a problem at scale solution. Yeah. Um, so we tend to work with organizations that represent many of the biggest companies in the world that are creating, you know, thousands, hundreds of, th hundreds of thousands of pieces of content a year. Mm -hmm. um, we don't need to start with that scale. So you know, 10 uh, tech doc writers uh, within a, a, a small editorial team inside uh, you know, a global enterprise like like Philips or Salesforce uh, could be a great place to start. Um, we like to identify from a, a pricing standpoint that the product usually starts at the price of an employee. We're, we're valuing it at about the, the cost of an editor. Uh, and uh, our implementations from a scale standpoint grow to you know, millions of checks across hundreds of thousands of documents in these businesses. Uh, we tend to uh, spend most of our attention in you know, software and high tech um, companies, like I said, like Salesforce and IBM mm -hmm. um, and have added to that you know, financial services, um, aerospace and defense, healthcare device, uh, medical device manufacturers. And because of our pedigree in Germany um, and in Europe in general, um, Industrial and heavy machinery have been have been great for us. Makes sense. 
I'd like to dig a little bit into this AI side. I mean, AI is obviously nothing new, but has become um, far wider spread in more recent years. And you said 2002, three, I think, which which is, I mean, it's early in terms of um, mainstream awareness of AI, I suppose. Um, has has the way that you model AI behind language changed over the years or have you kind of just taken the same model and built upon it and enhanced it and enhanced it? Or it, it has been a series of enhancements. I mean, we're looking, you know, it starts off with content as a stream of mm. characters and then extracting that content and identifying tokens and sentences and, mm. and adding that linguistic data, morphology and compound analysis, and then into the identification of specific terminology through variant detection and pattern, uh, applying patterns and proprietary rules that allows us then to do things with, you know, tone of voice, mixing rules and statistics and going across, um, you know, that tone of voice type of type of area of, of uh, the, the product into terminology and combining those areas to create specific voices. And that leads to the guidance that's delivered um, and how we, how we guide back to the writer. Mm. And I'd also be interested to know, like, um, obviously, what you're offering in terms of this kind of customized style guide aspect is a little different from what a lot of people have become used to. You know, there's a lot of tools now in this space that offer grammar plus, shall we say. It's, it's, it's not quite grammar completely. It's not style. It's, it's somewhere in between. And some of these are also starting to pop up in Google Docs and, and things like that too. Um, so how have you not necessarily stayed up to date with, with them because you are offering something different, but I guess staying up to date with customers' expectation because they kind of may think, oh, why should I pay for this anymore when it's in Google Docs for free and you have to kind of you know, explain better from a marketing perspective that's not quite the same and, and why you're different and why it's useful. Right. I mean, so we think of ourselves as a platform. Mm. And as a platform, it's the addition of new guideline sets that make our product more valuable. And that's how we continue to be relevant in the space. A provocative statement, uh, grammar is over. Like that's, that is a battle that we don't choose to fight. We have grammar in our product, but if you're looking to solve a grammar problem, there are a lot of ways to do that. Most of them are free. Um, So when we think about quality and I've, I've, I myself, when I got here, tried to get us to avoid saying content quality. People like to group us into a content quality yeah, okay. category and quality is subjective, right? <laughs> what, is, what is quality for you as a tech writer is very different from quality for me as a marketer. Yeah. Um, and also quality is cheap. Uh, it's, it's out there. Spelling and grammar is out there. So when we think about quality, it's correctness, it's consistency, mm. it's scannability. Mm. Um, those are the things that make it a high, you know, objectively high quality document, but then leaning into brand with tone of voice and clarity levels that are aligned with your audience's education level. For instance, I had one customer say that they wanted to be able to communicate at the level of a 13 year old girl. Mm, mm. So that's, I mean, think about that. What does that mean? I mean, that's a combination (laughs) of tone of voice and clarity level and terminology that come together to mirror a tween communicate. Yeah. yeah. 
um, and then into compliance areas like um, terms that we don't want to use um, from a legal standpoint, from a compliance standpoint, uh, inclusive language, accessibility, uh, legal terms. Um, so each one of those guideline areas is something that adds into the platform to make that platform more valuable at that at that enterprise content level. Mm-hmm. And it continues. So we continue to develop on top of this platform to create more and more value beyond just your grammar isn't good. So for instance, going backwards before this and I need a piece of content. Okay. Do you need to write it or do you have it? So can we go into the corporate repository and identify content that's solving that problem? And then the next thing would be, if we don't have it, can we create content that is going to be competitive wherever you're using it. Can it be found? Can it be found better than what's out there? Does it answer a question? Can you create content that will answer questions mm-hmm. or more valuably to the, to the end user? It's more findable. And then go through the process of assuring, you know, clarity, consistency, and character of that content. But the thing that's always got me with this is when I, I didn't want to use the word quality. So mm-hmm. we're not a quality solution. What are we then? And what I was, what I was drawn to was we're about strategy aligned content. And what that means, what I was getting at is we're setting our clarity, consistency and character guidelines. So I, as a content owner, uh, define a strategy for content creation. And so then we write some content and we get an, the way that the product works, you end up with a score. So you get all those tickets of all those suggestions and a score. And let's say that it's an 80. That means that it's good. Like that's a numeric value of good content. Mm-hmm. It's not, I like the shirt you're wearing today. And we had a really great conversation about the weekend and I, you're, you did a really great job today. It's an objective measurement of the alignment of your content with the guidelines that we've established. So mm-hmm. let's go further. It's an Acrolinx 100. This mm-hmm. is the perfect piece of content. And I put it out into the world and it doesn't perform. What do I do with that? Like, this is exactly what I wanted to create, but it's not working. Mm -hmm. So where we're headed now is first to be able to identify relevance. You've created the perfect piece of content, but you created the piece of content about apple orchards in Stowe, Massachusetts, and you put it on the Wisconsin Milk Board's website. It's not relevant. It's a great piece of content, but it's not going to do anything for anybody on that site. And then the next piece of that is integration with post-production analytics. So it could be Google Analytics. It could be through Marketo. It could be through a content repository. Wherever you're measuring the use of your content, so if it's website, time on page, bounce rate, uh, it could be conversion rates. It could be what, it, however you're measuring the success of your content so that I know I've created content. I know I've created objectively good content. I know that it's relevant. Now I put it out. I see how it performs. And if it's not performing, I should be able to take something away from that now and iterate. And where I want to get to where I think would be really exciting for us to be in the next several years is to be able to automate that process. Yeah. We so, shift from strategy alignment to audience alignment. So that's, that's, that's not something that Acrolinx does at the moment, like aggregate those kind of. Um... So the thing that we're doing next is bringing in those analytics. Okay. 
The next stage would be to say, I mean, it could be as easy as the happy face, sad face that you see in the airport. Mm. Did this solve your problem? And if smiley face, then cool. Mm. We, mm. we created the correct strategy. If sad face, here's a dropdown list of some options. You didn't understand the words. You didn't attach to it. You didn't like the emotion and the content. And that now aggregated into a big data environment starts to teach the system what the audience wants to hear. Mm -hmm. And we go from what I think as a content owner to what my audience thinks. So in that world, if you are an enterprise coming on board and you said, I don't, I don't really have a content creation guideline strategy. No problem. We'll set up a generic one. Mm -hmm. And in three months of use, you'll know what your audience needs. You'll hear, you'll learn what, how they want to hear you communicate. Yeah. That's actually an interesting. That's actually an interesting one, yeah. Because I think that often, you know, early stage companies will go through many, many um, evolutions of how they want to sound, and keep experimenting until until they find one that works. But that finding one that works is generally more personal opinion than actual. <laughs> well, exactly. It's yeah. people like me that come into an organization and say, "Okay, I got an idea for how we're going to sound now going forward," and yeah. this is not conjecture. This is what I did when I got here. Yeah. I, I sat down and defined the personality of the business. It's one yeah. of the first things I do in any company. And, and so, you know, I come up with, you know, we're wise, but not arrogant and we're witty, but not over the top. And yeah. it's fantastic. It sounds a lot like what marketers do. And it's why people make fun of marketers because we do things like that. Yeah. But now to make that actionable, what does that mean? Yeah. So if we're witty, but not arrogant, then we don't use big words and long sentences and we yeah. don't use buzzwords or a lot of acronyms. Uh, we say you and, and us to create personal mm, attachments. Mm, mm. And so those are guidelines that I can build into our platform. So that's what I did. And I pushed that platform out to the front office. So sales mm. and marketing and the BDR team use that guideline set to create customer outreach. And it resonated. Our yeah. customers appreciated that tone of voice. So I got excited. Right. So I think, I think I must, I must know something. Yeah, I can definitely see that your website has changed since I last looked as well. So maybe that's part of that. I'm not it, sure. It definitely <laughs> is. So, so I got excited and I was like, this is, it's working. Um, on a power trip that I was, I said, let's get other people in the business to use this. Yeah. Uh, who creates content here? I know who. Support does. Let's get support to use this. You know who didn't think that witty but not arrogant was so awesome? Our support customers. Um, they just want their problem solved. Yeah. Clear. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is being talked about quite a lot. There's a very good talk I saw from um, someone from uh, Atlassian on this subject, actually. Huh. When to use the right level of uh, jollity, shall we say. <laughs> so this causes me to think about guidelines really at a hierarchy level. Yeah. So at the top of the hierarchy, we all spell the name of the company right. Mm -hmm. And we all inherit that rule. Yep. But from yep. there, there's, there's a, a, a scale of communication that goes all the way back to product and UI strings and product documentation into product manuals, mm. and marketing and sales material, educational content, then out into post-production yep. yep. service and support. And each one of those is slightly different, but it inherits from the top yep. the things no, that are sure. most important. I understand completely. Um, I'd like to change tack a bit and dig in the little time we have left uh, a little into the, the AI side a bit more and kind of some of the potential problems with it. Um, I think I need to ask a question first, which 
you may or may not want to answer. I don't know. Um, Because a few companies in this space have had some trouble in the past around scanning of content, which you need to do when you're offering suggestions on content, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was interested to know, like, the models you collect, are they... Are they always unique to each customer or do you somehow kind of share uh, models without breaching privacy issues and things like that? Or, you know, what's the... I'm comfortable answering that question. Because of the customers that we work with, there are very distinct walls Hmm. between every implementation. Um, And, I mean, it's interesting because we are a software as a service. We are offered in the cloud but we actually don't get the benefit of being a multi-tenant cloud environment for that very reason, because you, you can't work with the biggest banks and pharmaceutical companies in the world that are creating very proprietary unreleased content mm. and let that sit out in the world. And as we evolve the platform, we're working on container models to be able to continue to solve for that. I, I would love to have a, you know, just be collecting all of this data on the way that mm. business is right. Um, because I think that would make a, a really strong lexicon for how everybody should write. Yeah. But yeah. we don't have the customers to do that. And especially in certain, it's interesting as well, because you could say, you know, well, all companies in aerospace could benefit from learning from what we've learned about them. But then, I would imagine that all those companies would kind of not want that because then they lose their advantage or whatever. Yeah. You know, so. and, and everybody, I mean, one of the things that we look at a lot just internally is analyzing public available content yeah. from these ah, okay. big companies and looking at how yeah. they choose very consciously to create their content and where the differences are between very similar companies yeah. and I mean, in some cases, it's by mistake, but a lot of times they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. And it, it's it's attractive to think about, like, here's Acrolinks for finance. It's a composite of the way that all finance customers write. But to your point, I don't want to be like all finance customers. I'm creating a brand new bank in the UK that has a very specific voice mm. for a very specific audience. And it doesn't help me to write like Lloyd's Bank. Like that's not, in fact, quite the opposite. Everybody's different. True, true. That's interesting, yeah. Um, Just a a couple of final questions. I was interested to know, um, you mentioned things like uh, some common authoring environments and things like that, but are there any other kind of more free-form integration options you offer? So it's a SaaS product, so that's usually not the style, but like API access or anything like that, if people wanted to kind of do something a little more nuanced or they had their own custom authoring tool or yeah, something like that. We do. I mean, one of our core differentiators is that we think it's important to let the authors author in their environment. There's a lot of products out there today that want you to create content where you create it, import it into their product, run your checks on it, and then export that improved content back to where you write it. And that's not, I don't think, I mean, you know, because you do it, that's not interesting to no. you. Uh, it's it's working within your environment. So we have you know, 50, 60 pre-built um, integrations with authoring environments, mm-hmm. but the way that our platform works, um, we can extend to just about anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And you mentioned uh, some things already, and they were very interesting, but uh, what are some other ideas you have on the you the company have on the on the roadmap for the next six months or so well i mean one of the things that we've really been working on improving um it's a i guess it's a a pet emotional project for us Mm. is uh is inclusive language Uh, and so last year um you know some stuff happened uh, here in the states and everybody went to their linkedin account to talk about how they care. And, um, we looked at that and we, you know, like everybody, we also did that, but we wanted to put something behind it. And so without really thinking about how it would impact us from a sales standpoint, um, we went about looking at what we could do for, I'm going to call it governance of inclusive language. It's Mm -hmm. every company that we talk to has an idea of how they want to communicate. So it's not so much us being the, the purveyor of, of inclusive language as a thing. It's just, how do you now, how do you now support it inside your organization? Mm-hmm. And before we could actually do that, um, we put together sort of a guidebook for inclusion and diversity management inside the business, mirroring what we had done here. Um, and, you know, again, just putting a book out there, it really has nothing to do with us uh, or what our product does. It's just something that we did because we have the organization that care very deeply about that space that are very emotional about it and wanted to spend their time um, putting that book together. And as it turned out, it's in use right now in, in at least a hundred enterprises mm. as the, as the guidebook that they're using as part of their process to build inclusion into their business. And so there is now a demand for us to do more in that space. Um, and it's not just inclusive language. It feeds into uh, accessibility, for instance, and we're changing, I mean, not just the way that our product works around in- accessibility, but even the things that we do as a company. So yep. we have a webinar coming up uh, later in December where it'll be the first webinar that is is fully accessible um, for the entire audience. Mm. Um, and it's just, it's not that we we didn't do it because we didn't want to. It's just a thing that as we expand into this area, our eyes are being open to so many new things um, that we feel like this is this is just the right thing to do. So the product evolves with this. Um, it starts to bring in, you know, like I mentioned, emotion and uh, the and analysis of emotion in your content because it's interesting. You you don't think about the emotion that you're you're putting into your content mm. and how people are going to read it. Mm. Um, but you do when you get an email and you immediately read emotion into it. Like I'm reading this and I think this person is mad. No, it's an email. I wasn't mad. I just wrote it, but you're reading emotion into it. Yeah. So if we can, if we can help people to see the emotion that they put into their content, they can actually make changes to that. Yeah. And so if it, your content comes out as aggressive and angry and you were sending a happy birthday note, you might want to change that. Uh, one, one final question, because I've been playing around with it a little bit recently in, in other contexts, and, and it gets a lot of things wrong, a lot of things right. Where, where do you stand on something like um, GPT-3, which is still rather war, raw and untamed right now, but starts to do a little bit of what Acrylinx offers, and, you know, over time could get there itself. Um, is that something you would probably look to 
compete with or integrate with or ignore or <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's it's very much something that we're aware of yeah. um, I, I sat in on a session that um, our CTO did talking about the topic um, and where where I live right now I mean mm. in, in my head I, I'm thinking about integration mm-hmm. uh, and, and not mm-hmm. not just there but I mean across the space so I would love to see us take a more commoditization view of, for instance, grammar. Mm. Let's use that as the initial example. And what would that mean? Would that mean that if one of our customers wanted to leverage Google Mm. as their grammar checker within our product, Mm. if we're a platform, why, why would we have a problem with that? Like that's, that's fantastic. If that's the one that you like, you should use it and we should our value is not in that. And so GPT, uh, GPT-3 brings a lot of features that might be things that would integrate into our platform yeah. and extend us in areas that we would not need to build in. And that's that should be, if we're, if we're truly a platform, that should be okay. We don't need to deliver every piece of functionality. In my mind, I'm looking at a world like Salesforce, yeah. Salesforce App Exchange, where there are things that you can acquire or buy that drop into Acrolinks to make it more yours. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter and find all of my writing, games, work and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind the scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.